every year in the media when the gaps don't close, you sort of see the onus is on Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people aren't trying hard enough to close the gap. And it's like, we're not given the funding, the autonomy, the power. Welcome to Listen, Learn, Respect, a new podcast from the National Apology Foundation coming to you from River City Studios in Mianjin, Brisbane, home of the Turrbal and Yuggera people. My name is Jessica Rudd and I'm co-chair of the foundation. Laura McBride is a wild one woman with an incredible role. She's director of First Nations at the Australian Museum. She's a strong advocate for First Nations communities and self-determination in the museum and played a pivotal role in helping it move beyond its colonial past to better connect with Indigenous stakeholders. Laura McBride is also a great person to talk to about closing the gap target 15, that people maintain a distinctive cultural, spiritual physical and economic relationship with their land and waters. And target 16, cultures and languages are strong, supported and flourishing. Thank you, Laura, for joining us on Listen, Learn, Respect. Well, thanks for having me, Jessica. No worries. So talk to me about where you grew up. Um, I was born on Gadigal country in Sydney and from about the age of five years, I grew up between Sydney and a town called Canamble in Western New South Wales. So I completed my schooling and lived with my mother here in Sydney. And for three months of the year, I would, um, during the school holidays, live out in Canamble with my father and the rest of my family. And I basically just grew up between those two places. And what was the first museum you ever went to? Can you remember? Look, I always know that I've loved museums and history. I cannot remember the first place that I ever went to see a museum, but I do know that I have a photograph of myself outside this very museum when I was younger. (laughs) That's awesome. So how did you end up not only at the Australian Museum, but on its executive team as First Nations Director? When I started in the museum sector, there were no positions like this. In fact, Um, The director position within the Australian Museum was the first of its kind in the state, um, quickly followed by Powerhouse Museum appointing a director of First Nations about eight weeks later. I started at the Australian Museum around 12 or 13 years ago as an Aboriginal educator. And how I ended up here actually was I was teaching at Tranby Aboriginal College and one of the board members there came up to me at an event that we were holding and um, had heard that I was a good worker and offered me a job on the spot. And, you know, when she said Australian Museum, I didn't hesitate. I said, I'd love to come and try that. At the time, around 12 or 13 years ago, my opinion is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples had very little, if any, agency within this institution. Um, There was perceived agency or, you know, staff might say that they'd worked with Aboriginal people. But in in my mind, um, we did not have any say or self-determination over how we as a people or our complex cultures were represented within this museum. And it's been 12 or 13 years of hard work and teaching, um, not only to the staff, but also to museum audiences about how self-determining models can work within institutions and the content they produce is more factual, more neutral, and also far more engaging and interesting um, and the types of knowledge that the Australian public wants to learn from Aboriginal people. So how did you begin to articulate and formulate that uh, that vision for um, a more self de- self-determined representation of First Nations people at the Australian Museum? Oh, it's like, it's it's very much bit by bit. It's, um you know, I started off in the education team. Um, there we were 
able to, within those lessons, teach our own perspectives as long as we were staying within the curriculum. And then how we first started to change the operations within other areas was to staff those areas. And so I can't remember the specific year. I think it was around 2011 after I'd been at the museum for a couple of years. I had been offered to apply for a grant, which was an invitation only grant for about five Aboriginal people who had been identified as future leaders in the arts. And I secured that grant was around 135,000 from what was known as Arts New South Wales, now Create New South Wales and Australia Council for the Arts also put in half of that money. And I was able to spend the $135,000 on any investment in my future. I could have completed a course, traveled, Um, Instead, I invested that money straight in the Australian Museum to pay my salary so that I could become a creative producer, the museum's first creative producer, and start to work on First Nations content, whether that be community projects, exhibitions, programs, outside of the education team. So that was the real start. That's extraordinary. So you basically carved out, created and funded a role for yourself as a part, as you went through and uh, decided that this was this was your future. Yeah, well, it wasn't even that I was thinking it was my future. It was more the fact that, um, you know, Aboriginal programs were not being run by Aboriginal people. There was a myth at the Australian Museum that Aboriginal programs didn't sell, but they didn't sell because they were just essentially non-Indigenous people making up what they thought would be an interesting program for other non-Indigenous people. It's essentially the whole premise of anthropology. Um, we'll, we'll write something or review something on a group of people through our lens to, to a group of people who share the same lens as us. You know, it's, it's, it's not a very neutral thing and it's not a very interesting thing. And that's probably why programming in that form did not sell to our audiences I guess it was more out of frustration like we have the right to tell these stories and starting off with um, projects that were really successful and that we could show here in this um, particular exhibition or program not only did we consult with Aboriginal people we collaborated with Aboriginal people to tell this story and produce that content and then that content's very well received by the public or sector peers and therefore it's set a template for us to do the next project. Museums around the world have faced an enormous amount of controversy, particularly in the UK and in Europe, around artefacts that have been taken by force during colonial rule and closer to home for their treatment of Indigenous people and histories. Is that something that you've experienced in your career? And if so, how do you deal with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, repatriations are... A big issue. It's um, number one priority for me um, when becoming director was first and foremost the repatriation of ancestral remains back to their communities of origin um, as well as restricted objects. So these might be secret or sacred objects to an area. Um, There's no need for museums anywhere around the world to hold our ancestral remains or our restricted objects. There's it's Um, no business of the Western world and those things should return to country. When it comes to objects of historical significance, I can see the reason why museums might not necessarily want to um, give away things that attract huge amounts of visitors. You know, museums, unfortunately, um, even though a government institution still do have to make money to survive and to continue the great work that they do do, particularly around scientific and historical research. A lot of people aren't quite aware 
museums around the world display less than 1% of what they hold. A lot of people don't realise that here at the Australian Museum, we have the Australian Museum Research Institute, over 200 scientists studying the natural sciences and producing incredibly important work around climate change and the environment. So these are the big ticket objects that people want back. And I think museums are just going to have to come to terms with the fact that you need to repatriate these objects to their communities of origin, or you at least need to engage with the owners of particular objects in a way that you can come up with a partnership on how to tell the stories around those particular objects and how over a period of time you might be able to return those objects back to those uh, countries of origin. I mean, repatriation is not a simple process. So whether you're talking about returning an ancestor to a particular community, it's a very complex process. Um, you know, repatriations in regards to Aboriginal Australia and ancestral remains are community led. Um, so you have to have a consensus and agreement. You need to find safe places to rebury ancestors and it's a traumatic history. Whereas if, you, if you're thinking about something like a, a very expensive historical object that might be sitting in the British Museum to return to a particular other country, does that country have the facilities to be able to care for that particular object? And, and some countries definitely do. Some countries have well-established A-grade museums with 24-hour security. Some countries don't. So it just depends on the object. But museums around the world will have to come to terms in the next 10 years that you will not be holding everything in your collection. And um, how are you able to do that in a way that's, that's good for the museum and good for the community of origin from which that object comes? The National Museum of the American Indian, I believe, um, I could be wrong, I haven't studied academically, was, was the first institution to really start repatriating objects. And, and what they found was you give back, say, 30 really restricted and sacred objects to a community, you're going to get 80 to 100 objects in return for those 30 objects that are incredibly important that you can tell a great story to, that the community will share that story for. And so you're actually, by giving away a small amount of content, getting a huge amount of content back that's actually more valuable to the museum and the museum's audiences. And then those communities have back their secret objects that they would never have discussed with museum audiences in the first place. So look, next five to 10 years in repatriation will be huge. and. Um, Hopefully the Australian Museum can set a little bit of a best practice pathway there as well. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it, that repatriation is increasingly going to be part of the social licence to operate and therefore becomes a commercial imperative. Do you think that we're seeing that change, that that will drive the, the amount of repatriation of artefacts and ancestral remains over time? I'm unsure. I'm unsure um, how commercially viable something like repatriation can be. Um, I think, you know it's commercially viable in the sense that here in Australia, for example, repatriation can facilitate a whole range of healing. You know, you talk about closing the gap targets, um, when control is in the hands of Aboriginal people and they can exercise their autonomy, people succeed. And that can be in any range of things. Um, there is no difference to somebody's mental health and stress to what there is when seeing, you know, that, their kids are getting incarcerated for something that a non-Indigenous kid with the same amount of offences is getting a Section 10 or let off for. You know, there's no way that people can necessarily understand that when you're living in communities with huge amounts of intergenerational trauma and a whole lot of socioeconomic pressures, 
how this can really impact um, one's health and a community's health. Whereas things like the repatriation of ancestral remains, the engagement with culture, the fact that people are able to learn their language in school is an empowering thing that can change people's lives. And when you start to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, like repatriation or, or giving people agency, all of these things eventually grow into something that's fantastic, not only for the people like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but for everybody living them around them as well. Around 2018, we opened an exhibition called Gaddy on Aboriginal Sydney, um, a very simple exhibition. It was around 400 square metres and um, we worked with about eight elders, each of who was in charge of telling a, a particular type of knowledge and telling a particular story. And um, that really opened the eyes for the museum. You know, hundreds and thousands of people have been welcomed to country here on Gadigal land, but no one knew what the term Gadigal meant. Um, and so just starting out that really simple premise and then unpacking it from there, these are the types of things we've taught the museum that we can do. And essentially the museum realized that um, this was the future and they decided that they would create a First Nations division and appoint a First Nations director. I just so happened to be lucky enough to secure that job in an incredibly competitive process. Well, and smart enough. Um, I mean, the amount of impact that you've had there, it sounds extraordinary. It sounds like it was a major highlight having that Gadigal exhibition. Um, what have been some other highlights since you've been working at the Australian Museum? You know, I'll always look back on my time here at the Australian Museum and I'll never forget um, Unsettled. You know, we opened Unsettled, I believe, in... May of 2021. Essentially, the museum had been planning its cook show for around five years prior to 2020, from about 2015, that it would celebrate the anniversary of Cook mapping the east coast of Australia. During that time, that five years with the work the First Nations team was doing, I think the museum came to realise, look, we can't really be putting on a cook show, a celebration of Cook. You know, the museum, its staff, the Australian public had started to learn that we we can't keep telling this same story. Um, and so they said, decided that they would um, engage an Aboriginal curator to undertake that uh, particular project. I think they asked a few people and after the success of Gaddy, uh, they then approached me and I just said to the executive leadership team at the time that I'd be willing to take on such a tough topic if they would allow me to consult with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So it was them that chose the themes and topics. And that's how we ended up with um, what I would think is the first major truth-telling show at any of um, Australia's cultural institutions um, in Unsettled. And the consultation came back that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples did not want to see Cook. They've heard enough of that story. They think that most people don't know the accuracy around that story. Instead, they wanted a truth-telling show. It was so well-received by the public. It was so well-received by schools and, really importantly, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were finally so happy to see that type of history on display. Um, Unsettled was open for about four months. We had over 70,000 people come through, um, but we also have Unsettled now at the Australian Museum website where you can actually tour Unsettled online now it's closed. That's brilliant. Talk to me when you've got 70,000 people coming to see a show that you've worked really hard and sensitively around putting together so that you can really have an impact and do that truth telling is attempting to go in as a, as a punter with a member of the public and just kind of listen to, well, let's, let's face it, how unsettling it is for non-Indigenous Australians to actually receive that truth. 
Oh, yeah. I just think um, the people who don't want to hear the truth don't come to the show, do they? And and I knew that we probably would end up with a few people who just didn't mean to be there in the first place. But something you do when you cur- uh, curate shows is, you know, once people learn how to read, they can't not read. So you just have some really good headings and um, that tell a story. So in Unsettled, um, you know, our first section was signal fires. But after that, you get into recognising um, invasion, uh, fighting wars, surviving massacres, um, you know, so it's it's those terminologies. There's a big, large headings people can't avoid. And I'm sure there were a few people that tried to walk through that thousand square metres as fast as they could. But look, the good majority of people were ready for this story. I think the most solid reaction out of Unsettled was the fact that why didn't we know this? You know, because if we could understand this, we can understand very quickly all the other moving parts that we've never been able to understand. Like people think this history happened a long time in the past. I'm first generation born off a mission reserve. My father was born in a fringe camp called Monkeela Bend in Walgut in 1957. He left school at 14, which was the age Aboriginal men were expected to leave school at the time. Aboriginal women would leave school at 16 so they could learn a little bit more reading and writing for, you know, domestic service type jobs. But um, I think that's the main reaction. And um, you don't even have to go in and hide. Like, you know, museum workers, we don't really wear uniforms. So, um, and we do hang out a lot in the exhibitions because of the demands on tours and a whole range of, you know, taking community in to see it. So we were actually in Unsettled a lot and you get to see the reactions firsthand. And um, I guess it's it's interesting because really you're all going through the experience together, whether you're visiting the show and learning from it or whether you're building it. Um, you know, it's about... I guess knowing how people respond to exhibitions and how they engage with exhibitions was a a tool I'm glad I had before I built the Unsettled exhibition. So the museum is playing under your leadership a, a massive role in working to close those gaps and I'm I'm interested in how you see that progressing um and what kind of uh, work on autonomy through engagement the museum has done in this space? And and is that now part of policy? Like, is that something that is just something because of what you've taught that the museum does naturally where it goes, actually, no, we actually need to engage with the people that we're talking about here. What's um, most important about the Australian Museum is that it's an authoritative institution. Um, historically and now what the Australian Museum says and does is fact and people don't tend to question it all that much I mean you know some people do but in general we're known as a scientifically truthful factual institution across that time the representation of Aboriginal people have been controlled by people within this institution and scientists and people working with the institution And so how we've been perceived over time, uh, how we've been represented, sorry, over time in this institution is how we've been perceived. And as Aboriginal people who mitigate false and negative stereotypes on an almost daily basis, the most important thing we need to do here at the museum is control the representation because therefore then you control the perception. And once we have an accurate representation, a neutral factual representation of Aboriginal people, histories and cultures coming out of the Australian Museum, it'll make it far easier for Aboriginal people to operate in their communities or have sources of information to back up what they're saying about their particular personal experience or their family's historical experience. So that's the most important role of the Australian Museum. 
Um, second would then be to utilize the collections we have in the maintenance and revitalization of cultures and also start to collect things from communities to accurately record what our community is about. Because um, at the moment, if you go into our collections, you would pretty much think that even today, um, most of us are walking around with clubs or spears. So there's heav heavily men's weaponry, um, which is really interesting. You know, people collect towards their theories. Uh, the theory was Aboriginal people were savages, hunter-gatherers, and so the main thing they collected was men's weaponry um, because that aligns with the theory where there's so much more than that. And then the third thing would be the repatriation of ancestral remains and secret sacred objects back to their communities of origin. Those three things together cover a huge amount of, you know, coverage, whether it's programs, displays, exhibitions, publications, research, you know, a whole range of things. So I think all that is growing. There was not much investment um, in First Nations. And so really a major task of mine is securing money for staffing, securing money for projects. Um, and this is a core business of most cultural institutions across the country is working with um, their development teams and donors and partners on being able to do amazing projects. And I think uh, Australian donors and a lot of the businesses are ready for that as well. So it, I do see a big growth in agency here at the Australian Museum through those means. What else do you think needs to be done to preserve culture and language in a more sophisticated way than we've done before? And I, I mean, is it funding? Is it, is that what it is? Is it, is it about getting the funding so that the sorts of programs you're talking about can be implemented at a wider scale? Yeah, like the first thing that popped in my head when you said that question is, I just know there are heaps of these, you know, what I would call our elders here in New South Wales who haven't had their stories recorded. Yeah. So oral history. Like hundreds of them. You know, I know there's also demand on people like me who work in these sectors who say, you know, Arnie such and such over here hasn't had her story recorded, Uncle such and such. And these are really important stories, you know. Mm. And I'm within this institution trying to manage the division and the five departments and the operations and the expectations and KPIs I have for my institution. Whilst I see out there that there's not enough um, – people with the resources they need to be able to record their own elder stories and, and keep those things. And when we say elder stories, they, these aren't just life stories. These are historical facts that are not in the written record. You know, these are experiences people had throughout time that are not in the record. And, and these are really important Australian stories that everyone should be concerned that aren't being recorded. So, you know, there's, there is a big gap out there. Um, small Aboriginal businesses, medium Aboriginal businesses, if they want to do um, things that don't make money, but things that have socioeconomic impact, so healing in community or being able to address socioeconomic issues such as youth crime, the fact that you you fill out 10 grants, right, for every, every one you might receive and each one takes you a week and, and you've got no income coming in. I mean, small to medium Aboriginal businesses just do not have the investment in this state, um, to be able to operate in those areas that they know they need to close the gap in. And, and once these businesses get money, they'll make change. <sighs> close the gap. Sometimes I, I feel like it's an Aboriginal industry. Like, um, you, you know, we have, we have a certain thing going on. Like, look at our incarceration rates have increased. Where's the money going into? Is it, is it going to Aboriginal people to, to solve these issues? I don't think it is. Um, well, the majority of it's not. 90% of it's not. Um, same with the removal of children has increased since they apologized in this country. And so where's the money for closing their gap going into for that? And so sometimes I do see things like closing the gap or Aboriginal funding as an industry that keeps certain people in business who probably shouldn't be in business. 
Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a hard one when you start to see, and then every year in the media, when the gaps don't close, you sort of see the onus is on Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people aren't trying hard enough to close the gap. And it's like, we're not given the funding, the autonomy, the power to, to, to close the gap. And if we'd like to really critique this model of funding and where it's going, then we will be accountable for that money that comes to us. This First Nations division here at the Australian Museum was built off very little financial funding and a lot of hard work. And, and now we do have good operational budgets and we are increasing our staffing, but that's not how we built the division in the first place. So, you know, Aboriginal people can do a lot of a small amount of money if they're given the agency to do so. And I think that's the key to the future. You would be unsurprised to learn that during this podcast of the all of the people that I've interviewed, that is the common thread. The common thread is give us the agency, give us the responsibility, allow us to do what we know is right for us, and then you will see gaps closing. Empower us, give us the autonomy. I mean, that is the common thread. If you could fix one thing about where we see Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country and their plight, is it that we just need government and everyone to empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be autonomous and make decisions for themselves in their interests? Look, I don't think anything in nature is one thing, you know, like nothing in nature is binary, for instance, right? So we've got this voice coming up and it's a yes or a no. And, you know, it's the whole debate people have around gender that there should be male and female. I mean, nothing in nature is binary. So why would gender be binary? And it's sort of the same answer to this. I I don't think even if there was one answer to this, like, have a government that completely empowers Aboriginal people on close the gap funding, that that's going to be the only thing that would work. I think it's a it's a series of things. One, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be in control of their own representation. There should be no more commentary about Aboriginal people unless there's Aboriginal people involved in that commentary. Over time, that'll change the way that people understand and relate to Aboriginal people. And then I do think we must have much more agency over funding and decision-making and even KPIs. So something we're transitioning to now is we're still delivering KPIs and ideas, even though we're making them self-determining. So, you know, the cook the cook show was the cook show and through consultation, we made it a truth-telling show and unsettled. But this next step is for us to make the decisions about what the next project's going to be and what the model looks like here within the museum. And then I think other people being empowered to do that in their roles, but also not to expect change overnight. Like, um, I've advertised a fair few identified roles here at the Australian Museum over the past 12 months and there's not enough candidates out there because now there is this understanding that employing Aboriginal people within your agency will help with your team diversity, will help you get better outcomes, particularly if you're working with Aboriginal people and communities. But there's not that many of us to fill the market. So there's this employment gap, right? And it's going to take us a few years to fill because It was only 30 years ago when our parents weren't able to get a full education and now we're expected to have an education plus several degrees plus decades of learning experience to be able to operate in these large scale jobs. So, um, look, I think there's no overnight solution, but I have a huge confidence in the young people here in Australia and even my generation they're allies and we're going to do it together. You know, we, we have a shared history. There shouldn't be an Aboriginal history in Australian history. It's a shared history and it'll be a shared future. And I'm confident we'll get there. Well, I think under your leadership, we will, Laura, and I, I really value what you do. 
um, at the Australian Museum. It's interesting you talk about our shared history. Both our dads were born in 1957 and I doubt that they were having conversations like the one we've just had um, at, when they were at our age. <laughs> and I, I'm hugely hopeful, uh, given the sort of story that you told me today about what you do, that we can move towards closing the gaps, even though it is a Herculean battle. I am confident that with people like you and your vision uh, that we can get there. So I thank you for your time and I thank you for joining us here on Listen, Learn, Respect. Thanks, Jess. You can follow Listen, Learn, Respect in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the National Apology Foundation, thanks for joining us.